The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Creator God, we're grateful to be in this space to worship you in this company of people, God, people who um, you have sought. And Lord, we are grateful that you have reached out to us and you redeemed us. And we accept, God, that we arrive here this morning, just all of us in different places with you. And God, some of us need to know of your nearness and your love and care for us. And some of us need you to be with us in really difficult times of grief and struggle and heartache. And there are still others of us, God, who are in incredibly joyous times with you. And we would ask, Lord, regardless of where we come this morning or how we come this morning, that you would speak to us in ways that we could see, know, and understand. That as we open your word, that you would continue to reveal your activity in the world and in our lives. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that all things said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, Ecclesia, if you've been around the last few weeks, you know that uh, two weeks ago, we started a series on the Celtic way of evangelism. And so you saw a video of Pastor Chris um, talking about uh, St. Patrick and the Celtic way of evangelism. And so now that you've had a couple of weeks to sit and think about that and get through the end of school for some of us in a new season, I was just really curious. Hey, you don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. But when you, when you think about the word evangelism, how do you feel about that? Like, what does that conjure up for you? Because if you're anything like me, when I hear the word evangelism, just about everything in my body sort of seizes and tenses up. And I think that I have really good reason to feel that way. So as I've mentioned before, I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And our family was pretty active with baseball and soccer and other things when I was a little kid. But the Saturday mornings, when we weren't active, like when we just have like a lazy, nothing to do Saturday morning, every Saturday morning, it seems like we had the same event happen. Every Saturday morning, about the same time every day, there was this. A knock on the front door. And do you know who it was? Jehovah's Witnesses. Every Saturday that I remember, and like they were out and they were doing their thing, they were knocking on doors, and I don't know if there was something special about my community or my neighborhood or my house, but they found us all the time. And we would open the door and there would be the Jehovah's Witnesses on the other side, and they would like be dressed to the nines, like men in suits, women in dress. Like if that's evangelism, church, like we really got to step up our entire game. And so the th same thing would happen. So my dad, who is just very big and loud and gregarious and has never met a stranger in his entire life, every time they would come to the door, he would do the same thing. My dad would invite the Jehovah's Witnesses to come in the house. 
And so maybe you had a house like this where there were kind of two living areas and one was the living area that you just normally use where the TV was and that's where the family spent all of its time. But then we had the second living area that we called the den and you knew that was a special room because it had the furniture that nobody ever sat on and the stuff that nobody ever touched. And so my dad would sit down on this couch and there was a coffee table and on the other side, there's another couch and he would sit down him on one side and the Jehovah's Witnesses on the other, and they would open their Bibles. And both my dad and the Jehovah's Witnesses kind of saw this as some sort of battlefield incursion. <laughs> like things were going to get ugly soon. And so it always started out peaceful enough. It would start out like a four or a five. And then slowly, both the temperature in the room and the volume level would increase. So what would be a four or five, the next thing would be like a six or a seven. And then a little bit later, it would be like an eight or a nine. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses would get like a 10. And my dad, who has no stopping point, would always just like crank it up to 11. And it was just full on. My dad yelling, Jehovah's Witnesses yelling, and this all ended the same way every time. My dad would end up just kicking the Jehovah's Witnesses out of the house. And, and this happened all the time. Like you could, you could set your watch by it. He'd welcome the Jehovah's Witnesses in the house. He'd kick the Jehovah's Witnesses out of the house. And so I know that I've mentioned before, my parents, my parents divorced when I was 15. But about 15 years ago, my dad got remarried, and I performed the wedding ceremony for my dad and his new wife. My dad's new wife, Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> but for me as a kid, right, like that's what evangelism was. It was this interruption. When I was a kid, like, I just wanted to watch old reruns of Batman and have a Saturday morning. And all of these interactions were fundamentally oppositional, confrontational. And, like, I didn't want to have any part of that. And I remember being a teenager in our youth group. We had this large youth group, and we'd have all these mission trips in the summer. And one summer, we were working in inner-city Nashville, and our job was just to walk around. We were working in the projects. Our job was just to walk around and invite people to either set up a Bible study or to come that night to a tent meeting, like a gospel tent meeting. Like some of you remember gospel tent meetings? Gospel tent meetings, almost the worst idea ever because they were always in the South and always when it was like 100 degrees outside. And I wondered like, are we approximating hell for people? Is that the job? Is that what we're doing? And I thought, this is a terrible way to talk about a beautiful thing. And so most of us don't do that anymore. Like I was in Arkansas two weeks ago, uh, speaking in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago, and the guy who was kind of showing me around, we drove past this little country church, and they were advertising this summer's gospel tent meeting that was coming up. And I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. I guess that still, you know, works in Arkansas. I think they still treat people with leeches here too, but still— um, that's probably something that started in the 50s and that they just kept on doing. And then I looked 
closer at the sign and it said third annual gospel tent meeting? Like you started this in 2017? And I'm just amazed at all of the really poor ways from really good intentions that we have come to talk about really beautiful and good things. And maybe you're like me and you've had a lifetime of experiences that when someone says something about evangelism, well, you'd rather do just about anything than that. And so we decided to talk about the Celtic way of evangelism. And so if you were here, you know that Pastor Chris shared the story of St. Patrick. And St. Patrick, when he was a boy, was kidnapped from England and taken to Ireland as a slave. And then he escaped and made his way back to England, was converted to Christianity, and returned with a group of people to Ireland. And is credited with evangelizing most of Ireland. That's what St. Patrick actually did. He actually did not run snakes out of Ireland. There were never any snakes in Ireland to run out. But that's what St. Patrick did. That's what he's remembered for. And he came up with what people started to call about 20 years ago, the Celtic way of evangelism. And that's really important because when he went back to Ireland, the way that people did evangelism around the world, the way the church did evangelism around the world, didn't seem to fit with both his experiences and what he wanted to transmit to other people. And this is the way the rest of the world did it, that you would arrive as a missionary or as a priest or whatever. And the first thing that you would do is that you would preach a Christian message. That's fundamentally how things started. You would just say, here are the facts about Christianity. Here are the beliefs about Christianity. Here's the message. And then once someone heard the message, the second phase of that was to invite people to become a Christian. And so you got the message if you responded positively, you just became a Christian. And then after that, um, you were welcomed into the church. And that's the way it was done. And when you boil all of that down, it comes down to like three movements. Presentation, decision, and assimilation. Someone makes a presentation, here are all the things that you need to know. Now that you know all the things that you need to know, or at least that we think you need to know, you make a decision based on that information. And then once you've made a decision, then you are welcomed into a community of people, you are assimilated, you become like the community of people who have likewise made that same decision. Presentation, decision, assimilation. And that's the way that it was done. But there's, there's something missing. For, for the people who came up with presentation, decision, and assimilation, they forgot something really important. You don't work that way. I don't work that way. None of us work that way. None of us just get a vat full of information and then just make a decision and just become like the other people who made that same decision. Like when it comes to the biggest decisions of your life, the most transformative, the most life-changing decisions of your life, you don't just have a presentation and make a decision and sort of move on. You consider all of your life. Like how does this, how does this feel? 
Is this a financially responsible decision? What, what, is this, what does this mean for the relationships that I have? What does this mean for the relationships that I want to have? What does this mean for justice? About a good and beautiful life. When, when you make life's most major transitions, life's most major transformations, you consider all of your life. And yet there are times where you just find some information and you just make a decision. Maybe some of us have just kind of bought a car without really looking into it or we've taken a sudden trip or vacation just because we wanted to do it. But that's not how we function with the biggest things in life, the most important things in life. It's not just presentation, decision, and assimilation. And I learned all of this when I was eight years old and I went to a presentation on timeshares. I don't know what was happening and I don't know why we went, but apparently if you endured this 45 minute, this hour long presentation on timeshares, uh, that at the end, you got to choose between these three giveaways, these three prizes that they were giving away at the end. And so I don't know why we went. I'm sure the prizes were really good. And it was one of those things, if we went, my mom took me and my brother because she really needed for us probably to have one of those prizes. Cause I'm one of those people and maybe you're like this too. Like you didn't realize until you were an adult that when you were a kid, your family was broke. Right, like, they didn't, like I didn't know I was poor until I went to college and everybody wasn't just as broke as I was. And so whatever reason we were there, whatever the prizes were, like we really needed them. And so we came into this room and the guy sat my mom down and me and my brother on each side of her and he started showing us all of the beauties if we bought into this timeshare. Cabins on the side of mountains, and beach houses, vacations at sea. And I'm thinking as an eight-year-old, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm glad we're here. And he got to the end. And my mom, who has always um, been very direct, you, you've never had to wonder what my mother was thinking. She says, oh, that sounds good. I don't think we're gonna be able to do that right now. So uh, we probably ought to just pick from our three prizes and go. And the guy got up and walked out of the office, came back in, slammed the door behind him, plopped this box down on his desk and just sat behind his desk with his arms folded, just mad that he hadn't closed the deal. And I don't remember what that guy looked like I don't remember what any of the three prizes were. But I do remember how I was treated. And I do remember how I felt. And I made a deep spiritual commitment right there in that moment that I have kept to this day. I will never buy a timeshare. <laughs> if you've got one you want to loan me, I'm cool with that. That's not the way people work. And haven't you had the experience 
where someone just lays out all of this information and says, make a decision, and then you will become kind of like me, when, when that's the way that they have treated your relationship, your interaction, doesn't that just feel to you like relational spam? Isn't that when you know that you have been reduced to a task, an item, something for someone to check off? So when Patrick and his community go to Ireland, they say instead of doing the presentation decision assimilation, what if we did it differently? What if we did fellowship, conversation, and invitation? So when they would arrive at villages, when they arrive at towns, they would just find one person, and they didn't have to be particularly uh, susceptible to the Christian message. They just had to be people of peace. And they wouldn't invite people into their community. They would enter into the community of the town, into the city. And slowly over time, that's how St. Patrick and his community converted most of Ireland. But this idea, this idea of fellowship and conversation and invitation, well, that didn't just fall out of the sky and hit Patrick on the head one day. He didn't have a dream, and then it just appeared to him. What Patrick was doing was reading the scriptures and living out the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to enter into the world. So one of the more famous passages of scripture, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, in fact, is Luke 10. And you don't have to read the Bible very often or know very much about the Bible. You may not have to go to church your whole life to know Luke 10. Just about everybody knows, everybody you know knows Luke 10 because in Luke 10, Luke 10 tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And so you remember that story of the Good Samaritan. There's a guy, he's on his way um, to Damascus. He's walking along, he gets attacked by a band of robbers. They leave him for dead. And then a couple of religious people come by and they don't help him. You know how that story unfolds. But before Jesus gets to that story, there's this little event that happens for the very first time where Jesus sends out his disciples into the world. And so he's got his 12, but these are 70 additional disciples. And for the first time, they're going out to tell other people that the kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom of God, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, that's shorthand for the place where what God wants done is done. This is where God is king and the king reigns. So everybody has their own kingdom. It doesn't matter who you are, all of us have our own kingdom. That may be a room in your house, that may be your car, that may be your purse. There's some place that everybody has where things are done the way that they want them done. And what Jesus wants the disciples to share with the world is that the kingdom of God has come near, that through Jesus, that we are entering to a new kingdom where the thing that God wants to be done is done and that God is king. And when he sends out these disciples, it's not like you and I going out to tell people about Jesus. Because if you grew up in America, you just walk around and something about the Christian message is almost painted on the walls. You've got to pick it up by osmosis. But when Jesus sends these people out, they don't know anything. And he says, this is how I want you to go out and enter into the world. So Luke 10, Luke tells us the story of Jesus giving instructions to his disciples about how to be his disciples in the world. And it starts this way. Jesus um, Luke tells the story this way. He says, then 
the Lord recruited and deployed 70 more disciples. He sent them ahead in teams of two to visit all the towns and settlements between them and Jerusalem. So this is the first step in the Jesus strategy, the way Jesus is going to handle things. Jesus says, um, you're going to go out in teams. And I don't want us to overlook that because we live in a world and a culture that is so dominated by the idea of the individual and individualism that to really accomplish something, to be self-made, to be valuable and to be worth something means that you did it by yourself. And what Jesus wants us to know is like, when you go out to do the most important things, the most vital things, like you cannot do that alone. Like you have to have other people who are with you, who walk alongside of you. Because as highly as some of us from time to time think of ourselves, none of us can be everything for anybody. That there are going to be gifts that you don't have, perspectives that you don't have, knowledge that eludes you. You don't know everything. The first instruction of Jesus when entering into the world is to accept some humility about what you can accomplish. And what if the world is designed in such a way that to do the most meaningful things, you cannot do them alone? So the people that God's brought into your path, whether it's friends or family members, folks from work or school, who else do you know that they need to also know? What connections can be made? Then Jesus starts in on his instructions. He says, there's a great harvest waiting in the fields, but there aren't many good workers to harvest it. Pray that the harvest master will send out good workers to the fields. It's time for you 70 to go. I'm sending you out armed with vulnerability, like lambs walking into a pack of wolves. Don't bring a wallet. Don't carry a backpack. I don't even want you to wear sandals. Walk along barefoot, quietly, without stopping for small talk. Now, this is all about posture. Jesus instructs his disciples, when you go out into the world, you go carrying only vulnerability. And all of the things that we've used over the course of a lifetime to build our defenses, our accomplishments, our wealth, our relationships, our education, our network, our knowledge, those things aren't going to be very much use to you. I send you into the world armed only with vulnerability. So four years ago, um, I wrote this book about how Christians should engage the world 
drawn from this teaching of Jesus, this idea of being vulnerable to the world and proclaiming that God's kingdom has come near, that God really does invite us to proclaim to the world an unarmed empire, that we go carrying nothing, dependent upon the hospitality of the world, Because one of the reasons that some of us, people like me, that we wince and get tense when someone says the word evangelism is because we have been on the receiving end or maybe we've even participated in evangelism becoming weaponized. So when I was in college, every spring break, we sent out um, these mission trips, these week-long mission trips called spring break campaigns. And so for my junior and senior year um, at Abilene Christian, I was the chairman of spring break campaigns. And so if you didn't want to go skiing, you didn't want to go home, you didn't want to go to the beach, you could go on these week-long mission trips. So my junior year, after having spent the entire school year working and planning and putting together all of these spring break campaigns to go to these different cities around the United States and into Mexico, I decided that I wanted to go on the one that seemed like it would be the most fun So I went to San Francisco, and there was also this girl on that trip that I thought was really cute, and mission trips were Christian mingle before that was a thing. (laughs) And so it just turns out that on this trip to San Francisco, um, just about everybody on that trip could sing. And so one of the things that we did the whole week, once we figured that out, was like we would go and sing places. And I was raised in Churches of Christ, and so we worship a cappella, and we could do that anywhere. We just sing, and we don't need any crutches or anything like that. We're good to go anytime, anyplace. And toward the end of the week, we had run out of things to do that they had planned for us. And so the guy who was leading the trip, who lives there in San Francisco, who's kind of showing us around, he decided, let's go over to UC Berkeley. And so we load up in the vans and we drive over to UC Berkeley and he shows us around campus and takes us to this this quad, this little square in the middle of campus. And there's tons of students around. And he just groups us all together and says, sing, which is exactly as embarrassing as you would think it would be. But we were all like 19 and 20 and really haven't you know, developed our say no button yet, so we just did it. And it was kind of weird and lasted for about seven or 10 minutes. And then uh, he instructed us, why don't you just spend the rest of the time that we're here, just go around and talk to people. And it was only then that I started to look around this quad to see who all was there. And and so back over in this corner from us, uh, there were all of these people uh, from the nation of Islam. And over here, there was like this really um, far right-wing political group. And over in this corner, there was this really far left-wing political group. And back over here was just this amalgamation of like Hindus and Buddhists and whatever else was over there. And they were all kind of talking to each other, but they were yelling at each other, just having like four-way arguments. Is that that... That spot in that place that it dawned on me, like, this is the place where people come to fight. 
and for many of us, what telling people who God is, who Jesus is, like we have just been immersed, maybe we were taught that way, to just fight, that it's always just a fight. And so when we hear about it, when someone mentions it, none of us want to participate in that. And Jesus goes on. He says, when you enter a house, say, peace on this house. If a child of peace, one who welcomes God's message of peace, is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, don't worry. Nothing is wasted. So as you go, here's what you do. You look for a child of peace, a person of peace. And then you proclaim peace. And if someone's there, if no one's there to receive peace, don't worry about it. And that's startling news for those of us who learned that talking about Jesus was always a fight. As a matter of fact, a little bit later, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, even if you go to a whole city and no one there is interested, just move on. Because Jesus is comfortable with something that we are really not comfortable with. Jesus is okay with being rejected. Very few of us are okay with being rejected. Have you ever seen like a reality TV show like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette and these people are competing to win the affections of this man or woman not even because they like them but because they just want to win? that there's something about the human condition that we become emotionally invested, spiritually invested in other people validating the decisions that we've already made. And Jesus says, it's okay. If your peace isn't returned to you, if people aren't interested, and, and there's an imagination at work, and maybe you were trained in it as a kid, that if you aren't force-feeding Jesus to people, then you are somehow ashamed of the gospel. But there's this little teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7 where he says something that seems really odd and people don't know what to do with it. He says, um, just don't, don't throw your pearls before swine. And it sounds really weird because it's Jesus calling other people swine. And if I've got something really valuable to share, why shouldn't I share it? And those people should see it as valuable. And it sounds like Jesus is telling me not to share something that's really valuable. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that swine have no use for pearls. Just no use. And why would you spend a moment doing something or saying something to someone else 
that wasn't going to be useful for someone else. When Jesus teaches this, he is actually centering the other person and not your treasure. Don't say things to people. Don't do things to people that aren't useful for people. There is no usefulness in your days-long argument on Facebook. Why would you do something to someone? Why would you say something to someone that wasn't useful? And then Jesus says this, stay where you're welcomed. Become part of the family, eating and drinking whatever they give you. You're my workers, and you deserve to be cared for. Again, don't go from house to house, but settle down in a town and eat whatever they serve you. Heal the sick and say to the townspeople, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And this is my favorite part of this teaching of Jesus. He says, when you, when you find a person of peace, when you come to a town, stay, eat, heal, and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus says, when you find receptive people, just do the ordinary thing. Just do ordinary things. And I think all of us have heard stories somewhere along the way about a man or a woman or a group of people who have gone off to some place and they have done something extraordinary and it's inspirational. And we look at it and go, wow, that's so incredible. But we also sit in the middle of the reality like, I can't do that. Like, I've got a mortgage, and I've got kids in school. I'm in the middle of school myself. I've got this whole life thing going on that I just can't sell everything and move away. And I'm glad when other people do that. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus says not everybody has to do that. You can just do the ordinary things. Stay and eat and drink so about six months ago, um, I met a guy at, at the gym, and we were just always sort of there at the same time. He's very outgoing. I think he knows everybody. And so we just kind of struck up a friendship, and we'd kind of sit around after workouts, visiting, talking about books we were reading or podcasts we were listening to. He's got some young kids, and we talked about what it's like parenting in the 21st century. And then, you know, a couple of weeks into that, uh, he was at a spin class, and he had this friend with him who um, just happened to be uh, an ecclesian, worships down at our, our downtown campus, and they kind of all put it together. And so we just kept talking, visiting about all of the people who come to the gym and never work out, just hang out in the locker room and sit in the massage chair, and then go home. And so I said, hey, you know, um, why, don't, um, why don't you come with me and do this? Our, our church makes available these Astros tickets, and I'd love for you to come just hang out at an Astros game with me. 
And he said, oh, cool. Um, can I bring a couple of friends? I was like, that's great. Come on, you bring a couple of friends. We met at the game. I brought two guys from my small group. Um, we had a really good night. It was one of the worst nights of my entire life. Um, the Astros got killed that night. There was a storm. It flooded on my side of town. I couldn't get home. I ended up sleeping on the couch down at our downtown campus that night. It was really terrible. But the next day, I saw him at the gym. And he said, hey, um, things are really hectic now. But I, I was thinking, maybe, um, maybe I come to your church sometime. Okay, that's cool. So about a month or so ago, he comes, worships, brings his little kids with him, goes home. I didn't think about it. I saw him the next day at the gym in the locker room again. He's like, hey, 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 sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. He says, so um, your church, um, your preaching um, exceeded expectations. I think I'm going to have that put on my tombstone. <laughs> like Sean Palmer, like exceeded expectations. If you see that, you will know that my children did not do that tombstone because they would have said like Sean Palmer, decent, right? <laughs> he says, um, you know, we got a lot going on and we got a lot of traveling we're going to do this summer. Um, but when we get back, I think we want to come. The ordinary things, podcast and books, parenting, baseball, the ordinary things. And essentially what Jesus tells his disciples is that the practice of ordinary things creates the space for extraordinary healing and conversation. Just the practice of ordinary things. And it's so amazing that when Jesus walks the earth and is teaching, he talks about ordinary things bread and wine, vineyards and trees, the ordinary things. And I don't know about you. I don't know about your personal life, your professional life. You may be the kind of person who exceeds expectations. But for me, most of the time, I feel like a very ordinary thing. There's nothing extraordinary, nothing special. And I love the fact that God uses ordinary things that years later, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay.
this profound, beautiful, redemptive treasure that is Jesus Christ is bound up in this very ordinary, everyday thing. And that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is alive in you. And so may God's power be present and active in all of your ordinary days. Let me pray for you. God, we praise you for giving meaning to our ordinary days and our ordinary lives and ask that you would continue to embolden us and strengthen us. Give us a sense of your work in us and through us, that you are active in changing the world through the power that is Jesus Christ in all that we say and do. And we thank you for this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.